What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Did I influence someone today? Did I inspire someone today? You know, these, these things, you should be looking in the mirror afterwards and saying, Did I, have I treated them all well today? Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys. Um, first of all, I want to thank everyone for uh, being with us this evening. Um, today, I've got a very special guest with me. Uh, it's the first time the Coaches Network podcast will be going live um, on, on any platform, really. Uh, my guest this evening um, isn't on Clubhouse, so you're going to be listening to all the audio through my mic. Um, and there'll be an opportunity for people to ask questions towards the back end. Um, so just to get us started, then, you know, guys, welcome to the Coaches Network podcast. My name's Coach Yas. I'll be your host for this evening. I've got a very special guest in Paul Holder. Paul Holder is a FA Youth Coach Developer. Good evening, Paul. How are you? I'm good. I'm locked down good. Down good. Yeah. Um, you know, just to kind of, uh, before we get started, everyone, you know, if, if you are following the conversation, feel free to you know, tweet us, um, hashtag, hashtag the Coaches Network podcast um, on the Twitter and let us know your thoughts and comments throughout the conversation. Like I said, there will be a plenty of opportunities for people to get some questions in at the end. Um, but hopefully you enjoy the conversation me and Paul are about to have. All right, Paul, just to kind of, you know, just to give everyone a bit of a background about yourself, you know, before we get started, I want to kind of take you right back to the start of your coaching journey. Um, but in brief before that, you know, where did that coaching journey start for you? Well, when you say journey, it implies you know where you're going. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so that implies that this is all planned. I didn't uh, plan to be a coach. I planned to be a footballer. And that went belly up. And uh, so I thought, well, where can I play football? Yeah. And uh, learn a little bit. So I went to PE college. Yeah. And uh, learned to be a PE teacher. And then I decided uh, I was teaching in schools PE and I decided that fifth year girls or year 11 girls badminton wasn't for me and educational gymnastics I was useless at. So I started focusing on football and, and that's when basically I used to take the school team, district team, county team and uh, I went through the school system really and then worked at Crystal Palace part-time and uh while I was doing that, I was uh, working in community schemes. I did some work at Brentford Community Scheme, Leighton Orient. And so just did got me sort of spur, one that sort of got me spurs in different environments. Then I went full-time Crystal Palace. Then moved to the David Beckham Academy. That was uh, pure Hollywood. And uh, <laughs> that was great fun for a year. And then off to the FA. Mm. Ended up as a national development coach at the FA, then went to Brighton, head of coaching, academy coaching. I'm back at the FA now as a, uh, an FA YCD and I'm in other projects there. So, Fantastic. I just want to kind of take you back to that journey, really. You, know, you, you talked there about um, in, you know, the journey would obviously imply that you had a direction that you knew you were going to go in. Um, mm. Now, obviously, you stumbled into coaching, maybe not didn't, didn't work out as a player. I think for a lot of us, it's been the case in the sense that we all have a passion for the game. We'd love to become players, but when that doesn't work out, the next best thing for most of us is going into the coaching world. So what was it about the coaching route or when did you decide to actually, you know, coaching something that you did want to kind of tap into? Well, I actually like watching kids play football. So that's a bonus, actually. You've got to like, you've got to like watching them play football. 
if you're working with kids. And uh, then I always sort of, even when I was playing and always had this sort of thought that I could do better than you, the manager, you know, whoever I was playing for, I said, I don't, you know, I, I, I was always thinking as a, as a coach, I think. I was thinking, you know, as a coach. And uh, I think when you, when you end up sort of stop playing, although I was coaching while I was playing non-league at the time, is, is you, you then start to actually realise that you can affect people and that, that's a dramatic thing. You know, teachers all report that, the, the, that, that, that it's, it's great to be able to impact on somebody. And once that starts, it snowballs and, and it's a non-stop process then. You just can't give in. Mm. You know, once you start coaching, you just keep going. Mm. And I, I think I definitely agree with that. I think certainly for me, you know, the, the moment I stepped into the coaching world, I knew that well, I'm not going to do anything else now. I guess, you know, I want to take you back to obviously your first steps and you talked to maybe working in schools. Mm. What was it about, I guess, move, you know, where, where did the ambition come from to maybe start moving into, I guess, the elite side of the game? Because obviously following the schoolwork, you move into some of the academy stuff with Crystal Palace and, you know, as you mentioned, Brighton and the rest of them. Yeah, well, it's a natural thing. It, it was a natural thing then that, that you went from taking the school team and if you showed any potential, then you took the district team. And I took uh, a great district team, you know, Enfield, Enfield District. And they were really good because in that district team, you would have teams that uh, you would have players at Spurs, Arsenal, other professional clubs, but they were mixing with mixing with players who are not a professional club. So it's a great little model, very competitive Saturday mornings, the little season that we used to run and it was highly competitive. And then from there, the county scene came in. So I sort of ran, I, I ran Middlesex schools uh, under, under 16s. I think it was under 16s at the time. And in that period, there's Colton Coles were in the Middlesex setup at that time. And it was, it's fabulous. So it was a natural thing from school to district to football. And then, you know, someone at a Crystal Palace said, well, why don't you come and do a little bit here? So it's, it's, it's a bit, snowballish if you see what i mean so, but that, that system doesn't run now so it's quite different how people get into professional clubs from 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 outside if you see what i mean or from sure and just kind of you know to kind of build on that you know just to kind of paint a bit of a picture in a timeline um obviously you know just you just hit your 40th birthday last week but without giving too much away <laughs> how long how long ago was that and what, what kind of year were we in at that time we're talking about uh 1980 1990s okay you know around that period yeah and i'm you know it's a bit blurry i just hope it's not further back than that <laughs> i'll be gutted if it is but i'm gonna stick <laughs> with something that's not too distant yeah so and i wasn't i wasn't young mm. you know i wasn't i wasn't 22 23 when i was doing district and county you know i wasn't i was in the 30s so mm. Just, just on that, then, you know, you, you talk about how maybe the pathway might be different going into the elite game now or uh, certainly into academy football. Things have you know, massively changed over the years. I'd be interested to know that, you know, first of all, what your thoughts are on the way things have progressed. Obviously, in the last, in the number, last 10 or so years, we've got the introduction of the EPPP and things like that, um, where qualifications have been kind of mandated for different sort of, sorts of roles. And, you know, first I want to kind of start with that then, you know, get your thoughts on the introduction to E-Triple-P and your thoughts on that. And well, yeah, I mean, oh, blimey, I could go on for hours about this. You know, this could end my career tonight. But I think it's the E-Triple-P is a system that was set up um, so that you took, I think Howard Wilkinson led it by taking, taking uh, the best players out of the school system and handing it over to clubs. So that's when the county and district football disappeared to be replaced by academies. You know, the, you always went to, you know, I was at Brighton when I was 14. You know, you, you, the, that period then is you didn't go into professional clubs till you were 14. But this system now is, is the kids have never had it, never had so many resources, never had so many opportunities. But even now, there, there are, they're still kids, and you can see if you if you track ITN, for example, they're they're now reporting the mental health issues of some kids that have been released into the system. So, even though you've got, or oh, sorry, released from clubs, and 
And so with all the good things that have come out of it, we've got to be careful that, you know, the welfare of the kids is, is paramount. And the question is, is it better now than it was? Well, the game's changed. The game is a technically is a technical masterpiece now. It's quicker. Players are quicker. So in many respect, that clubs now have more access to kids than they've ever had. It's what they do with them mm. and how they treat them. And I think we're going to see the welfare of kids. I mean, kids up to 18 and beyond, by the way. I don't mean seven, eight, nine, ten. Because mm. you can go to an academy at seven. And in effect, you can be in that system at seven and still be in that system at 16. And then you're not in there anymore. Mm. You know, and, it, and, it, and it's, it is a really tough environment. You know, if you're a kid at Spurs or Arsenal, it's not easy. Manchester United, it's not easy to keep yourself in that system. You know, so I think there's some great bits about it. And there's also bits that really need serious looking at. Definitely. And I think right at the top of that, you know, you talk there about how the game has moved on um, massively, especially when it comes to the technical and tactical elements. Just on that, you know, obviously the coach education pathway has changed massively as well. And, you know, the arguments a lot of coaches have made and discussions I've certainly had with them is that it's gone from probably what was a heavily focused around technical and tactical kind of model to now, which I think, you know, which I think is definitely beneficial, but it moved much more towards a holistic approach. Um, what are your thoughts on when, you know, the views that I guess the current pathway of the coach education system maybe lacks some of the technical tactical aspects? Or no, has- I, think, I think you're right. I think that, that, that if you look now, we keep, you know, I mean, pundits and everyone keep moaning about the technical abilities of our players, or maybe not so much now, because some have gravitated to going abroad, like the, the Sancho's of this world into Dortmund, and now we're exporting a few. So there is, there is, a, there is the, the fact that we're technically better than we are, but what we've got to do is, is actually keep up and and keep up with the Germans, keep up with the Italians, the way that they practice, the way that, that their technical ability is, is, is everything, mm. their technical and tactical ability. And if you think now, and, and we say, look, do basic things to an advanced level, not advanced things to a basic level, you know, and, and I think it's reaffirming how important the basics are because all the top players, you've got to watch, uh, watch Leeds Crystal Palace tonight, you know, uh, when this is over, by the way, not now. The, um, is Leeds Crystal Palace tonight, and you see the technical ability of players. You can't, for example, you look at the tackles. Now, tackling is going to be a fine art because if you've only got to get the margins slightly wrong and you're either in the book or it's a penalty or it's a foul. And so the whole sort of uh, the whole speed of the game and the technical ability of players is going up by the minute. And if we don't, if we don't help players to practice to get to that point, and I don't think we're doing the job properly. So we, I think you're right. We have to really look hard. Are we, for example, teaching the players receiving skills, passing skills, the basic skills, but really to our very, very high level? Or are we jumping into tactical things before they've got that right? Mm. And that might be, you know, like the, the evidence is stacking up that we probably need to, Go back to the basics and the simplicity of it. I mean, you know, you make a great point, and I think I, d- I definitely agree. What I would, I guess, question though is, with the way the coach education pathway has shifted towards much more holistic approach, and then mean less emphasis on the technical tactical stuff. Where does that leave um, the coaches who are maybe coming into the into the industry now, and maybe are not too, I guess, competent or confident? More, but more importantly, with that element of the information, and you know, where do they go to maybe build that that knowledge base and I know the easy answer probably would be well, go and watch other coaches, study the game, but, um, you know. One, well, it's also what you need to know and who you're working with. If you're working with grassroots, and I, I, I use that word really in inverted commas because all kids are grassroots until they get until they get a pro contract. You know, so I have a problem with the grassroots elite sort of differentiation, you know, and, and whilst kids are still in might be at a club essentially they're not elite until they're elite if you see what i mean yeah. and i think so it depends who you're working with if you're working with school kids who, whose motivation is just to be with their mates then what knowledge do you really need what we've got to help them with is understanding the kids and who's in front of them 
you know, not all kids. And, and who are the kids that want to get better? And who are the kids who are just there for another reason? You know, and it's all about understanding your subjects rather than the subject. Mm. And I think that's where the courses and where the, uh, all the courses have been really good is, 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 is recently is to say, right, well, you un need to understand how kids learn. You need to understand that all kids are different. You know, all kids are different, but essentially the game drives them. So they fall in love with the game. What are you doing to keep that love, that fire burning? Mm. You know, because you only learn if you like doing something. So mm. I think I think it's really important that we keep the keep the keep the coaches understanding that, that yeah, you've got to know technical tactical. You really do have to know that, you know. But how much do you need to know if you're dealing with kids who, who are only there for social reasons? So I think some coaches have overcomplicated things because they misjudged the group in front of them mm. or the reasons. And I found that when I worked in schools, you know, I failed so many times at either trying to do things where they go, well, I'm not really interested in this. And then others where I've undercooked it, where I should have been far more detailed with the more, the more advanced. So you get it wrong, but in the end, you start to learn about um, what what the needs of the people in front of you are. Mm. And you I need to know them. 100%. And I think, you know, one thing I want to kind of touch on, you know, a few moments ago, you used the word drive, and you're talking about uh, wanting the players to drive and uh, getting the drive for the players and motivating them. But I want to kind of bring you back to your journey a little bit. You know, you've, you've now gone in from working in schools, gone to Crystal Palace. I guess, you know, what, what drove your journey from that point onwards? And, you know, would you mind just taking us through the next steps of that journey, please? Yeah, well, Crystal Palace, when I was at Crystal Palace, it, it wasn't glamorous. I'm going up the A10 with a moped and a bag of balls in the, in the, in the foot, well, of the moped and getting stick from van drivers because I've got a Crystal Palace top on. Going to, right out to Ballsmore Lane and Ballsmore Lane is out in the middle of just near the M25, freezing cold, dark, yeah? But I loved it. I loved it because I loved watching the kids play football. And where I got my thing is I wanted more of it. And I wanted to do, I wanted to say, right, well, I'm doing this part-time. So I would teach all day, do all that, then go and do, uh, then go and do um, this Enfield Centre, you know, for Crystal Palace. Saturday mornings, I'm seven days a week you know, locked into either working. And then suddenly you think, well, I could, I'd like to do this full time. But you have to have that inside you that you want to make, you want to affect, you want this game, you want to teach these kids this game and you want to see them play it properly. Mm. You know, and that's what drove me really, because I, I just like watching them play. I think it's fabulous. You know, so I think it's not so, it's not, it's not, um, it's not academic. It's just something that you just like doing. Mm. And I think, I, think that's, I think that's an important point. You know, I think it is got to be something you like doing and you've got to, I think, you'll be very conscious about the reasons why you're doing it. So I guess, you know, you've had that experience of uh, maybe getting uh, tooted and booted by the van drivers down the A10. Mm. Enjoying your experience working at uh, Crystal Palace. Where did it go through from there? Well, C Crystal Palace, and then I be became assistant um, academy director at Crystal Palace started putting the syllabuses together, working with 18s. That was the era of Victor Moses and Wayne Routledge and Ben Watson and all that crew that came through. And that, that was, you know, they were fabulous for the club. And, and Will Sahar was 10, something like that. You know, and so it was, a, it, it was an interesting club to, to, uh, to earn, your, earn your spurs, if you like. And then from there, I needed a break, so I went to the David Beckham Academy to help 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 sort that out for a bit, just for a while. And then I wanted to learn more about coaching coaches, so I went to the FA or I applied for a job at the FA and came away from the club environment for a bit. And that's where I sort of started to learn about coach development. Sure, and in terms of that, in terms of that role itself, obviously you kind of, I guess come out of that role and maybe gone back into it now obviously going back into club football like yeah. with Brighton and obviously come back to the FA what was that role like then when you first went to the FA what kind of led you out of that and then how did you end up back at the FA well 
what you do is, is when you go into the FA, you, you, you think, right, well, I'm not working with kids anymore unless you're just taking one of the national teams. You're not working with kids anymore. or So you're now working with adults. You're now working with coaches. And uh, I think if you've got that burning desire to work with players, in the end, you will have to go back and work with players, which is what I did. But the role I did was a regional job to help devise courses. And I wrote, I wrote uh, with... John Allpress and, and Pete Sturgis, who wrote the Youth Awards, the FA Youth Awards, which uh, uh, were fairly successful at the time. And they started up the Advanced Youth Awards. So there was a lot of courses going on. And those courses were driven around understanding more about practice, understanding more about the kids, understanding more about how, to, how kids learn. So that, that was an interesting time. Yes. And, uh, and I went across professional and, and grassroots so that was really it. I learned so much in that period whilst in that period I took the uh the England amputee squad to the world championships uh oh my god you know baptism of fire or, or what that is like you know when you're dealing with it doesn't matter it doesn't matter whether you're in disability women and girls first 11 whatever it is they're still driven to to want to be the best right. in the tournament and, and that was very very the learning curve was very steep for me to do that. So a lot of interesting things in the FA at that time. But I had a burning desire to go and work with players. So I went to Brighton to, to work with players. So, you, you know, going back into Brighton now, what, you know, what was that, that time at the FA? Obviously, you said you were largely working with coaches, the development of coaches. You've then gone back into Brighton or back into club football mm. um, as head of coaching down at Brighton. Mm. Um, I'm curious, what were some of the biggest things that you kind of picked up along Initially, obviously, that academy, assistant academy director role at Crystal Palace, then moving into the FA and now getting yourself in preparation for, I guess, developing the coaches in a club environment. What were the biggest takeaways from you in, in terms of that? And what was your leadership style in that respect? I think um, the biggest message I learned from Crystal Palace was that how different people are and how that, you know, you, you'll, you'll have one kid that's, coming off an estate and he lives in, with his with his mum in a one bedroom flat and you've got another one who lives on a farm with 25 acres and but they're all there for the same reason and the the, the the practices that you have to do and how you treat them and how how you um you 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 you're driven to say right well each one of those kids is there to to be or wants to be a professional footballer but you have to treat them differently. And I think at Palace, it's like, well, what does player A get that player B, what does player B need? What does player C? So I learned a lot about, uh, I learned a lot about how to deal with the individual. The other thing, which was, I've never, I've never coached um, kids under 14 in my life till I went to Crystal Palace. And then suddenly I had to learn how to deal with seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old. Mm. That was, that was quite challenging at the beginning. Because I wasn't a primary school teacher, I never I didn't set foot in a primary school, and you know, um, so that that was quite a challenge for me to learn that. So I had a steep learning curve for that, and then and I took all that uh, to Brighton with me, and also Palace had a way of, way of being. They had a it was like, and if you know anything about Palace lads, is is they're quite free spirits, yeah, and that uh, I love that. You know, like the free spirit. And I wanted to take that, that free spirit sort of feeling down to Brighton. Yeah. So now, you know, obviously going from the FA into Brighton as a head of coaching, what does that role entail for those that maybe aren't too familiar with it? And what does that look like on a day-to-day? Because I what, think head of coaching? Of, yeah, the head of coaching, because obviously a lot of clubs... Yeah, well, it depends at what club you're at. And it depends. Yeah. When I first went there, I took the under-16s and uh, did some, looked after the coaches as well start to look at the syllabus what what we could possibly do you know certainly up to the age of 18 beyond that that was more sort of first team stuff and then uh it got more formal towards less less coaching and more to do with coach development so uh and uh still developing syllabuses and still working with the coaches so it became less me coaching and more me coaching the coaches which i've done at the fa so that had a particular time let span. I, I knew that if that went totally towards coaching coaches, then I would want to go back to the FA. Right. 
if you want to learn, you know, because that's that's what they're very good at. That's what, and, and history says that's what happened. So, but it's it's almost like uh, it's almost like when you when you when I first went to Brighton, you know, it was like I love taking on under 16s is a great group to take, you know, and I had a, a fabulous time. I tried to bring everything that I learned at Palace and at the FA to that, and that that I think we had some great successes in the early time there. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, you've eventually, you know, had had a, had some time at Brighton, and then mm. ended up back at the FA. How did that come about? Um, and obviously, you know, you've kind of gone back in at a time where, you know, I guess in the midst of a pandemic, really, you know, there's been a lot of changes at the FA for, I guess, for them to bring in certain staff in and certain staff going out at the same time. What was what was that like? You know, was it an easy transition? Was and was yeah, I, th I think so because I'm, I'm, there are people here now at the FA that that are. That were there when I was there in the first. So I went off to Brighton. Like it's all like it's a bit like a secondment. Mm. I was at the FA and then I went off for five for five years. It was five years I was away, and learned so much in that club environment. But then, then I it was a natural transition that if the job at Brighton was going to be more about coaching the coaches, then I felt a bit restricted about that, and and I felt a bit well. I came here to work with totally work with players. Do you see what I mean? So, so I drifted towards sort of you know drifted towards the FA if you like, and I, I thought no, I'm going to apply for a job, and the rest is history. But mm. so, um, now sitting as a you know youth coach developer at the FA, would you mind just maybe helping listeners that aren't too familiar understand? Right. Yeah. I'm in the professional game team, and I go around. I've got I've got four clubs that I work with basically. Uh, I work with QPR, Crystal Palace, uh, Gillingham, Luton. Uh, they're my four cluster clubs that I help the coaches. If they're on courses, I support them through courses. If they're not, I do CPD. Always in touch with people in those four clubs, and that's my little cluster club. But I'm also in uh, some key working groups at the FA, like diversity and inclusion big on 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 uh, i'm in a, a working group to to uh to develop that and uh, a player development group which is uh looking at what we talked about earlier about bringing back more technical you know a lot more more technical input into maybe some of the courses and how we can elevate you know the the, the individual skills and tactics of players rather than the team stuff you know how we can bring bring that forward definitely and i think you know, it's a great point i think it, it, it's about finding the right balance with that on that, on that note i guess you know just curious then obviously you're you know you've had a range of roles and currently working as a coach developer um what have your roles in full both in and outside of football really taught you about leadership and, and what it looks like to actually lead others well i'm not sure because i don't know what a lead you see i th i like i like I'm a lead by ideas. You know, I like to think that some people lead by ideas. In other words, like I'll throw ideas out there. I'm not the traditional, like, you know, follow me. I'm going to do this. I like putting ideas to people. And, and I think, I think leading people is about one providing what you say is, is, is making sure that what you say you can back up. Yeah, and don't just say things, emotional things, unless you can back it up. I think that's because then people will listen to you. Mm. Yeah, I think the thing about leadership is it's been thrown around all over. You've got leader, football, oh, he's not a leader on the pitch. Well, some of the quietest people on the planet are great leaders, you know, and everyone has their own, uh, uh, if everyone has their own style. And I think we've got this in this country, we've got some idea that leaders have to be like this. Mm. like that you know and uh some are not some some generate ideas and influence people through their ideas i'd like to think i do that and you know role model good behavior and and all the other stuff that that goes with that you know and being genuine and, and honest you know there are things that you know people will if you're honest trustworthy and all, all the things that go with that and you can back up what you say yeah, you know, and you're respectful and all the things that, you know, your, your personal values that you hold dear, 
then I think naturally people will follow you, you know, or follow your some of your ideas. They may not agree with you all the time. Yeah, so Paul, you know, I just want to kind of bring you back into the conversation there. And, you know, you've, you've talked about some of the range of experiences that you have had. I'm curious to know that, you know, you talk there about leading others. Um, and I guess having an idea that people want to buy into along your journey, then I'm interested in maybe, you know, who, if any, has been a major influence to you, um, possibly in the form of a mentor. Um, it might be one, might be a couple of people. What, what were the biggest lessons you've kind of taken from them? I, I don't have one particular. Mm. I have little snippets of loads of different people. Uh, no one, I hope people will know John Cartwright. And John Cartwright, if you don't, you need to, people need, could look him up. But, you know, very, very sort of wise man who worked at Arsenal for years, was at the National School at Lillyshaw, you know, and he was my academy manager when I was at Crystal Palace. Mm. And used to say to me, if I ever do a drill, I won't be working there anymore. You know, so he taught me about, uh, and I, practices and how he wanted he had a definitive way that he wanted wanted people to practice now whether i agreed with it or not he he, he could justify why why he would want us to play like that and he was a school teacher you know he, he understood the learning about young, young kids and he was outstanding and so he would be one that's definitely influenced me you know, and uh, another one would be an old QPR player that's sadly passed now, but Mick Leach, who used to play with Stan Bowles. No one would know this unless you're from that era of a fantastic team with Jerry Francis and Stan Bowles. And he told me about what professional football was really like, you know, and uh, so I learned a lot from both of these for different reasons. But there's been, they're just two that stick out that are, but I've learned off kids. You know, I've learned of seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds. You know, I think the key is, is who's a mentor? I haven't got one in particular, but who have I learned off? The list would be endless. You know, I think the key is, are you willing to learn off loads of different people? Mm. You know, if you're willing, are you open to, are you open to a kid to, to tell you the truth? Are you open to ask a kid, what was that like? What was that practice like? What am I like as a coach? You know, what you know, are you open to if you have to you learn an awful lot of people? You mm. know, I seem to yeah, they don't have to be older than you and wiser than you. Yeah, hundred percent. I think you know you make a great point that we can learn off our players, and there's plenty of times in my own journey where I think one of the things that we kind of got to get over a little bit is obviously we're in a, we're in an industry where it is very much egotistical. Uh, we don't like to have our egos put, you know, um poked on in any in any way. So, you know. Some, you know, I've certainly learned from over the years that when I'm speaking to my players, it is asking some of those questions, you know, but I think also being vulnerable with them allows us to get more out of them as well. You know, just on, just on that note, I'm kind of curious and you know, all the things that you have kind of learned and um, been able to kind of put piece together over the years. You know, how would you describe, I guess, the fundamentals of your own coaching philosophy and what does that look like on a, on a you know, on a day to day? Well, the coaching, this word philosophy yeah, is thrown around a lot, isn't it? The key, the key is for me is that you put the players first, despite what I want to do and whether the players come first. So if I understand that, I always think, and did I influence someone today? Did I inspire someone today? You know, these, these things, you should be looking in the mirror afterwards and saying. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Have I treated them all well today? You know, and these sort of questions I think are really important. So your philosophy is driven by wanted to do wanted to be right by them and you're not going to get it right all the time when i took the amputees to the world 
championships my first someone said to me come and do the amputees you'll love it and i went okay right so so i go to lillishaw do the first session and uh bomb my session is that you would do with under 16 academy kids these were amputees you know in a disability world driven and but the practice was not right and well i learned very quickly yeah that I've got to look in the mirror and say, I might not get it right today, but do you know what? I'm going to get it right for you tomorrow. And that's the key. The philosophy is based on, are you, can you, can you, are you a, uh, are you a receiver of the, the clues and cues that come back? You know, are you sensitive to what, you know, can you, can you, can you sense and feel whether things are right and wrong? Can you sense and feel, oh, I know. Oh, you might say, oh, I left him off. Oh, I've done that loads of times. You have a sub on the bench and you go, oh, sorry, I should have put you on 20 minutes earlier. Now that's forgivable, yeah? But the kids will always forgive you for being wrong, but they won't forgive you if you're not for them. And that's what you've got to show. And that's one of my bugbears in, in coaching. Is it for you or is it for them? What are you doing it for? You know, and that goes back to my original point about loving watching kids play football and getting better at it and getting enjoyment from it mm. and learning the game. You have to have that in you. Otherwise, you're going to get tripped up because you're not going to care what, 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 what they think. Do you see what I mean? Definitely. You know, kind of just to kind of build on that, you know, you talked there about that being one of your frustrations, your bugbears, as you put it. Um, you know, you've worked in the game for a number of years now. Um, both as a coach and a coach educator and, or coach developer, however you wish to view it. Um, what are some of the other frustrations that you kind of see that on, you know, are consistent, regardless of the environments you're working in, that kind of really get you, you know, essentially a, a alternative, alternative bugbears to the ones you've just mentioned? Oh, well, ignorance is one of them. Mm. You know, you know when, when you sometimes, and I've heard this before, you know, that coaches unaware of kids strengths and weakness or, or family or they don't have to delve deep in because it's probably not their business necessarily but unaware of where the kid is teenagers in particular you know uh, ignorance about how teenagers are mm. leads to conflict you know and and sometimes ignorance will lead to conflict so find out and i think there's no excuse for ignorance there's excuse for not knowing and then finding out, but not ignorance, because ignorance implies that you haven't bothered. The other thing is elite. I don't like it. <laughs> you know, when you know you, you have these titles, the elite, and under 10 is elite. Well, elite's world class, world champions. Mm. You know, I think you, you can't put this label on kids yet. You know, and you can only put it on, you can, they're in an elite, some kids are in an elite environment. And some kids are not, but have the potential to be. And it's very dodgy for suddenly saying, oh, no, he's elite. Well, he's not really. He's only elite when he's a world champion or she's a world champion. I think that word is brandished about. And alongside that elite comes words like fantastic, exceptional, brilliant. We've inflated the words when actually, and John Cartwright said this to me. I said, oh, that's a great pass. He went, was it? Or was it just ordinary? Mm. And what he's saying is don't use the word great unless it's great. Yeah. And I think it's become a bugbear of mine because it's almost like it's almost like saying everything is suddenly great and therefore all the players are great. Well, no, actually, not really. No, definitely. I think you make a great point there. I remember... I think it was a couple of years ago, Gary Neville was talking about something similar in, in, in the words that are being used to describe certain moments in the game and how he has to be you know, now moving into the punditry world and more specifically as a commentator, he's had to be very specific about how we describe certain things. Because, you know, if he's identified similar to what you said there is, you know, Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo doing something fantastic or great, he can't then go down and say, well, what's happened on that in the Sunday league game and the grassroots game is, is on the same level. So, you know, you have to kind of really be careful about the wording that you use and, Oh, it's huge. The word is huge. I mean, how many times do you hear people in shooting practices say unlucky? <laughs> when he blasted over the bar seven times. And you yeah. go, we can't be that unlucky. Any chance of you addressing his technique or working it out? I can't. Unlucky. That's a word. You've got me on it now. So there's another bugbear. <laughs> yeah, so these words that... that and, and actually, it's important. Mm. 
because kids have got to know that you know you're better off not saying anything than putting in a word that 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 has a misunderstanding you know so and i understand that you, you've got to boost kids confidence and get all that but you've got to be very careful mm. but ignorance is a big problem 100 percent. and i think you know it, it's one of them ones where if you keep praising it uh, with the same sort of wording you know then when it is truly great what do you say then yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, it's a catch twenty-two in some ways. If you're not, if not, if not very careful about how you, I guess, phrase certain words and go about doing that. And also, you can praise kids and say the reason you're doing it. Look, I like. Listen, that was good because. 100%. But if you say, "Great, great, I love that. It's great pass. Why was it a great pass? Yeah. You know, and or why was it a great bit of play? And sometimes the kids need to know why it's why it's great if it is great. But then suddenly. If you keep using those words, what is great then? You know, suddenly everything's great. So do we have do we invent another word that's above that? Mm, like no. five star. Well, what's next? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it is a Six great star. point. It's a definitely <laughs> great point. I think you know you've got to be very careful about how you go about that. You know, kind of just you know, like for some people that could be a challenge. You know, and, and speaking mm. of challenges, I'm curious to know, like you know, coming back to your own journey, then what is one of the biggest challenges that you've faced? And you know, how have you been able to kind of get around that? Well, the biggest challenge for me as a coach, yeah. I think the the biggest challenge is 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 and if I say say practicing or or thing, the biggest challenge is is making the practice relevant and and realistic for them. That's always been the biggest. Is it right for them at that time? Do you know what I mean? I think like, uh, and I've I've used this thing before and. Uh, I took the first team at Crystal Palace, or elements of the first team at Crystal Palace, you know, the ones that I think I had a, uh, some of the group. And one of the players in there, I was doing this whizzy practice, thought it was brilliant. Some of them said it was great, but one's literally sort of said, well, I'm not getting out anything out of this, you know, and left the field. But uh, it, it's, um, I think what's important is, is that you try and get things right. It doesn't matter if you if you fail. You know, just just try again and fail better. <laughs> you know, but you just got to keep going on at it. And but the key is the biggest challenge for me is is and and the frustration is I never reach perfection. Mm. I'm never I'm forever getting things wrong. You know, and the biggest challenge is is coming to terms with that. That, that uh, one minute I could be and then I you know when I was at Brighton last um couple of years ago and I've been coaching Ender and I've done a session with an undertones. I think Crumbs, that wasn't well, very good. You know, wh why is that? You know, and I think that that is the biggest challenge for me is, 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 is understanding that we're human, you know, and we're vulnerable and kids like that, by the way, mm. kids like the fact that you can get things wrong, but what they really like is you admit it. Yeah. Well, sorry, lads. That was dreadful, wasn't it? Or, I didn't do that very well. Or on match day, those I've told you to do that, and it's my fault. Mm. You know, I should. You know, you know, you own a bit of, you own a, you always own the the, the glory. Why don't you own a bit of the pain? Hundred percent. And I think you know something that kind of it, it resonates with me in that even when I'm trying a new session, for instance, I'll, I'll be open and honest. I say, you know, boys or girls, I've you know I've never tried this before. I've got an idea that I want to work with, and it might not work, but let's just see how it goes. And we kind of, I find that it, it, it more brings them on a path where we're on that journey together rather than me leading the journey or them, you know, being at the forefront of it, if that makes sense. Totally. But the key is the more simpler the practices are, the the less chance you are of getting it wrong. 100%. <laughs> and actually, if you put them in a game, I always, I've always, uh, this is my biggest learning thing is actually when it's going horribly wrong, I'll just put them in a game and just sit down and go, listen, get on with it. <laughs> right. I'll have a better day tomorrow. You've always got the game to go back to. 100%. You know, yeah. kind of, you know speaking of going back, you know, I'm curious now, and as we start to kind of wind down, if you had an opportunity to go back to the start of your coaching journey, you know, whether that be your first steps in coaching at back at the schools or maybe back at Crystal Palace even, what would be one message that you maybe want to give yourself uh, knowing what you know now? No, don't worry. Don't worry. You take care of the kids. The kids will take care of the football. And don't worry if you get things, I keep, and I've said it over, don't worry if things go wrong. Because if you treat the kids well, 
And this was my thing. When I was, young, I was just, I was paranoid about getting things wrong. Mm. Yeah. And, and you want everything to be, and that's great because you, you set yourself high standards. You want everything to be really good. It ain't going to be like that. You know, suddenly two players turn up late. Oh, got to adjust to that. So something goes wrong. You know, things go wrong. You have to be adaptable. But the key for me is, is that, that don't, it, don't worry about getting things wrong and always put the kids first. Yes. Yeah. Always put the kids first and think game. Think game. Does it look like a game? If it looks like football, it probably is. Therefore, they'll be motivated. And keep the thing as realistic as you can. And I know we're going into coaching things here, but realistic and relevant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it right for those ages and stages? Is it right for them all? Is it realistic? You know, and how many times do you see coaches fighting with, with coaching sessions because they're just totally unrealistic? Mm. Don't look like the game and the kids go, well, I wouldn't do that in a game. Or, you know, that, that it's an elaborate practice with 30,000 cones on the pitch, you know, and the kids are not sure what to do. You know, so, yeah, it's that really. And keep it simple. I definitely, I think keeping it simple is definitely the biggest message you can give anyone in this now. I mean, you know, I guess mm. I'm curious now, you know, you've got having a range of different roles, both in coaching education as a coach as well. You know, I'm back at the FA as a YCD, um, still fairly recently. But, you know, where, where does Paul Holder go next from here? I don't know. I don't know. I just want to keep um, enthused about the work we're doing at the FA at the moment. I think there is much work to be done on the technical tactical side that we talked about earlier. I'm really interested in talent ID, you know, uh, how we can identify some traits in players. I'm really, I could see myself in a few years time moving towards that, you know, moving towards talent ID, but I'm just happy where I am at the moment. I don't know where the next, thing is i'm just gonna do i'm just gonna try and do the best i can with with the work i've got at the moment i think diversity and inclusion is is a thing that i'm really really tucked into at the moment and the raising and elevating the technical side of the smalls the 2v2s the 3v3s the 4v5s the individual skills and tactics so there's a lot of work to be done there and convincing coaches, you know, that to look at the technical, tactical in more detail. Mm. Yeah, definitely. You know, you know, I'm just going to, on that note, I'm going to, uh, you know, I guess move into the audience a little bit now. You know, guys, just before we kind of uh, get anyone on stage to maybe asking some questions of Paul, uh, just a quick reminder, you know, you, it is the Coaches Network podcast. If you can hashtag that on Twitter, um, let us know what your thoughts are, your comments on the episode and, you know, I guess now is the time. If anyone's got any questions, they want to, you know, feel free to raise your hands, and I can bring you to the stage and ask a question for Paul yourselves. That's if anyone's got any. Yeah. Yeah, we've got one here. One. Hold on one second, James. Uh, can you hear him, Paul? Yeah. Uh, just. Yeah. Go on, then, James. Hi, Paul. Uh, my name's James. I'm the um, under fourteen academy coach up at Everton. Um, just want to go right a question for you. Just go right back to what you said at the start um, regarding the foreign academies and they have better technically, you know, young players than us. What are your thoughts? Why, why is that? Do you think? I, I, I'm not a great... I, I think it's a, a lot of press has been said about technical players. In I think we've got some really good technical players. Uh, I think it's... I think a lot of it's about individual tactics. I seem to think, and I think it's a practice ethic, and I, I'm sure you've been to Germany and Holland and all over, and, and I'd like to, I, I think that, I think that the, the practice ethic in Holland is exceptional with young kids. You don't have to watch them practice. They just keep practicing and practicing and practicing. And I think that in the end, when you're grown up, I think that's the difference. And uh, I think it's changing, but I do think I do think that that we've got to be careful of saying we haven't got as good technical players as Europe. Well, we have, but we've got a certain type. Mm -hmm. You know, who are the ones that are being exported? 
across the water. You know, the Sancho's, the clever, the clever ones. And that's because they, they haven't got enough of them. So I think it's, uh, it's more about practice ethic. I think it's more about raising how important the basics are here and not jumping into team tactics too early. You know, so uh, I think that that's where we'll probably get more of our players. I, I think we've got great technical players, but I think we can get more of them. Thank you for that, James. Cheers, Paul. Thank you. Oh, mate. Um, anyone else got any questions from the audience? Yeah, I've got a question. Um, <clears throat> hi, Paul. My name is Ryan Fisher. Uh, I'm actually the CEO and founder of a company called Total Football Group, which is um, a company that has represented a couple of footballers. I've done a, done a few transfers and things like this uh, across Europe. And... Obviously, agents have got quite a poor reputation across the game. Um, I know that's a bit of a generalisation, but I feel I can comfortably say that, especially uh, navigating the world of football as well. Um, I wanted to ask you, as somebody who is a coach and obviously deals with players at a young age and has been in the game for a long time, what is the general perception of an agent across the coaching system uh, in the UK? What, what do coaches feel uh, towards agents on the whole? Well, I think if you're an agent now, I think you're in a, in a really booming industry. And the reason I say that is because some of the agents I know uh, were solely seen as people that are dealing with money and transfers and, and loans and all that. But now some of the agencies over here are dealing with welfare, doing player clips, making sure the kid's all right off the pitch as much as they are on it the financial side is so they're almost like they're, they're sort of they're taking care of their whole holistic being if you see what i mean and i think and i think that is such a fantastic step but i think what they've done is trying to fill a gap that maybe some of the clubs haven't uh are filling a gap that, that has been sort of cracked open by the clubs because they you know maybe the clubs carry so many players who's looking after them you know, in that detail, and agents over here now are starting to do that, and I think that's a I think that's a fantastic move. Okay, so just quickly on that, um, my grandma, who's eighty five years of age, bless her, um, she can make a really good cup of tea, but she's not she's not qualified to be a football agent. She could go onto the FA website tonight and pay two hundred and fifty pounds and become an agent. So I understand what you're saying in regards to um, agencies out there now offering a wider range of services, but do you feel as a coach and is the perception of agents across the coaching system within the game that they are qualified to do that? Uh, I can't. I can't. It depends. I, I think agents are always, and uh, I've never dealt, I've never really had to deal with an agent, to be honest, but there's a still a mistrust with them you know what what they why they do you know because actually what they want is the best deal for for the player but what's important it's not about the qualification it's what the players say is the players and i know players young players who are with an agency and and they are looking after them like gold dust they're making sure that they look after their welfare they make sure everything's all right at home they look after the parents and in terms of qualification, I can't answer that. But in terms of the the, the feedback that they get is is so competitive that if they didn't if they didn't provide a great service, then that player will go somewhere else. So I, I'm I just I just see that this is a, a big growing industry, and I accept what you say about qualification, but I I don't really know the answer to that. All I know is that the players. The players I talk to with an agent, the agents now are doing far more with the players than they were 10, 15 years ago. Oh, thank you for that question, Ryan. Um, we've got Ollie next. Ollie, you there? Nope. Uh, Ollie's gone. <laughs> Ollie's gone. Um, we'll move on to Ashy. Ashy, thank you for coming to the stage. Um, we've got a question there for Paul. Hi, thank you for letting me in. Uh, I am I am an entrepreneur from Tel Aviv, 
and I'm working on a startup idea with mission to give underprivileged kids a true chance in a professional world of sports. And I would like to hear your take on the, on the, the chances that the kids with a low income class, uh, what do you think are their chances to make it in a professional world of sports? Well, sorry, forgive me if I heard you correct. Are you saying that kids who are sort of like in it, who have, have uh, who come maybe come from environments in which there's not a lot of money? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Low, medium class. Yeah. Well, if you look at the, the kids that are in academies now and you look at what's happening, the clubs, the clubs provide transport and go and get them. They're doing far more to take the pressure off parents who, who maybe can't, can't take kids to academies. About five or six years ago, maybe further than that, uh, you, would have, you, would have, um, you would have to need really, um, well, not wealthy parents, but you'd have to have enough money to get your kid to the, to the training ground, you know, and you have to have a car and stuff like that. And, and that's obvious. But I think what clubs are doing is recognizing that, that they can provide transport. So they are they are trying to get to get these kids who who, who are probably come from areas which is which you could call deprived, but are, are certainly financially challenged. And inner city inner city clubs do obviously do much better, you know. But they are trying. So. I think the class divide in academies is nowhere near as, as great as it has been in the past. Mm. I think we've got uh, one final question before we look to kind of round up. Um, thank you for that question, Ashley. We've got uh, Zabdi next. I don't think I answered him very well. <laughs> I th I th I th <laughs> well, I think in, in short, it is, it is definitely a challenge, but I don't think it's a, a be all. I, I think it's a great point. Yeah. You know, what are we doing about? You know, if you live in a, I have to say this, if you live in a flat, you know, and you're with your mum or your dad or, or there's, a, you know, a one parent family, how do these kids get access to the professional game? I think that's a real, that, that's a real important because, you know, you know, as well as I do that that's where a lot of talent could lie. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a great question, which I've failed to answer particularly well. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You did well enough, thank you. And, uh, okay. If we could take it uh, take it uh, in a more personal note after that, I will appreciate. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that, Ashley. Um, Zabdi, question. Hi, Mr. Holder. Uh, this is Zabdi from Mexico. I worked at the Mexican Football Federation, and I did uh, the D license Concacaf. And I noticed as well that. Um, all the trainings uh, and the material that CONCACAF has from UEFA as well. They focus a lot on athlete or footballer uh, enhancement and improvement uh, on their skills and the, the, the way they play three against three, five against five. But then there's not much material about how the coaches can educate their parents, how the clubs could educate uh, the parents when they're in tournament, when they're in training. So is there any light that you can share with us as to like how you dealt with with the parents and like, you know, in general advice? Because, um, you know, like parents are as well part of how we yeah. bring kids, right? Yeah, I, I, get the, I get the question. And, and uh, there's two things you can do with the parents. You either include them or you exclude them. And you'll find that the clubs and... Uh, if you there's a lad on earlier from Everton and, and they're fantastic at this, including parents in all the decisions and including um, making sure the parents are absolutely part of the process rather than on the side. And I think that's a big thing that clubs, professional clubs over here um, have worked really hard to do is include parents and particularly in in when it comes to uh signing and release and reviewing and reviewing progress the the key is there's a lot of lot of money 
and a lot of resources are going into into this relationship between the club and the parent and the player. And uh, I think it's a relationship where the parent has not been at forefront in the past, but now because parents are more, you know, more, more savvy. There's so, you know, the social media makes sure that everyone knows what everyone else is doing. So in some respects, the clubs are forced to, are forced into this because, you know, uh, uh, they can't keep the parents at arm's length. They've got to keep them. And that's quite right. So there's a lot of work being done with that and professional clubs up and down the country spend a lot of time uh, in, in liaising with parents uh, particularly when it comes to transport, when it comes to education, when it comes to... Because there's a lot of clubs that take kids out on day release from schools. There's a lot of, you know, of organising to do. Not everyone gets it right, but it, 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 there's a lot of um, time and money spent on the relationship between the parent, the club and the player. Oh, definitely. Thank you for that point of view. I took some good questions there from the listeners. Uh, Zabdi, thank you for that one as well. What's my kind of look to kind of? Sorry, can I just? Yeah, I can. I can vouch for that. It's it's daily. Paul, you're right. You know, we we're in contact with them daily. Um, Paul, at the start of the season, what we or if we just sign up play, what we ask the parents to do is to trust us. Yeah. Trust our decisions. Trust that you know we're looking after his welfare, his education. Is, is is actual plan is game plan etc and because if that parent doesn't trust us and they could go against the grain or we tell them that the, the child like he's doing the wrong things when we're asking him to do the right things etc it could be a conflict of interest and that could you know disrupt that kid's um development um you know and put them on the wrong path but yeah it, it's definitely it's, it's a full-time it's a full-time job just dealing with parents on a daily basis yeah, that's great. And the parent, the parents are so essential in this, you know, and, and it, you know, as well as I do, up and down the country, you, you will have parents, you would have kids in, in a solid family and you are others in a dysfunctional family. And, you know, so, but, so the, the liaison with the parents is critical, even when the kid has left the club. You know, so that, you know, if you've treated the kid well and you've treated the parents well, then... They will carry with them the praises of the, of the they will carry with them the the, the the love of the club wherever they go next you know so it is a it's an essential relationship to get right and some clubs get it wrong unfortunately and they they keep the parents at arm's length and then wonder why communication breaks down between them and the kid definitely 100%. Uh, i think we've got one more question from the from the audience um it's gone up oh, he's disappeared now oh, he's gone uh he's had enough no worries all right we'll, we'll leave that one there then um but right, you know it's kind of just kind of looked around up you know uh, paul i want to say thank you again for your time this evening it's been really insightful for me and i'm sure it has been for the listeners as well um just on the i guess last two questions i've got for you really you know if you had 60 seconds now to kind of leave the listeners with some golden nuggets of your own um, you may you maybe picked up over your journey. What what would they be? I think if you can look in the mirror and say, do you know what? I treated the kids well. I did the best. I did the best I could, and you keep doing that. I think you've got a chance. And I think you've got. I, I think the thing is you've got to. Uh, I think we've got to listen to the kids. Ask them. You know, was I all right? You know, are you, you know, anyone who's not enjoying it, can you see it? You know, because the kids love the game. They love the game. The, what you want to do is to keep that fire burning, but you've got to ask yourself, you've got to look in the mirror and say, did I do right by them? You know, whoever they are, I don't care if they're 25, whether they're five, you know, and I think that's, that's the key to co the coach. You take care of the kids, the kids will take care of the football. Mm. you know and that's my message that somebody said that to me and i didn't quite get it at the beginning but they're right yeah because the football's the easy bit it's taking care of the kids you know like uh and, and treating them as individuals that is is key definitely you know just on a on a final note then uh paul you know just by having this conversation with me this evening you know you've made yourself part of the coaches network so i guess you know what is the i guess the legacy that you want to leave behind when 
you know, with everyone that you've made, you know, come on, man, I'm not leaving. <laughs> well, no, you're not leaving. You're going to be a Hall of Famer. Of the coach. <laughs> what do I leave behind? A gas bill. <laughs> yeah, uh, I just, I just think, I, I think you can leave behind just enthusiasm, and you know, you, the whole thing about coaching is, is, is I ask this question: Are you inspirational? Who are you going to inspire today? Can you be inspirational? Yeah, and then everyone you remember, you know as well as I do, you'll all remember inspirational teachers and inspirational people in your life. Yeah, you may not remember what they said to you, but you will remember them. And I think the key is, how do you want to be remembered? Do you know what I mean? I don't want to be remembered as someone said, oh, he said this to me. I want to be remembered as someone's look. Do you know what? He treated me properly. You know, he talked to me properly. He did this, this and this. Do you know what I mean? That's what I want. You know, I want to be seen as an inspiration. Fantastic. Not just, a, you know, a font of advice. <laughs> you know, I can get that off a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, you make a great point there. You know, now kind of just on that note, you know, if there was anyone that wanted to, I guess, take some advice from you or maybe go into a bit more depth around some of the conversation we've had today or even points beyond that, um, is there some way they can do that? Yeah. 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 What, you mean social media? Yeah, I know you're quite active on it. You know, 40th birthday last week, I saw your celebrations go up. <sighs> There's no need, is there? I've got a Twitter thingy. Right. You know what it is, don't you? Uh, I I can share it with everyone, but look, um, Paul. I'm on Instabook and Facegram. Instabook and Facegram, I love that, yeah. (laughs) Um, Look, Paul, you've been very, uh, very insightful this evening. Um, You know, thank you for sharing, I guess, the insights around your journey and the lessons learned um, and maybe some of the secrets to your success in youth development. Um, I'm sure it's been as much uh, of an enjoyable experience it has been for me as it is for the listeners. Um, I just want to thank you again for your time. Um, take care, Paul. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.